Hello, and welcome to Fraud Eat Strategy, an FTI consulting podcast series in which we explore the myriad ways that fraud, corruption, and misconduct can derail strategy and cause havoc. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director in FTI's Risk and Investigations Practice, where I assist clients in their outside counsel in managing their response to event-driven white-collar crime, misconduct, and bribery incidents. So this is part two of my discussion with Wilmer Hale partner, Kim Parker, and FTI Senior Managing Director, Mike Archibald, on how to approach those early days of an FCPA investigation. Welcome back, Kim and Mike, and thanks again for joining me. So in, in certain situations, the resolution of a corruption enforcement action includes the appointment of a monitor to oversee the continued operation of the company, you know, sometimes for a period of years. What's the difference between a monitorship and then say like a compliance program remediation project and are there any parallels? Well, typically a, a compliance monitor is an outside independent authority that is imposed typically as part of some you know, law enforcement settlement and they have a certain term and they are mandated to come in and look at the compliance program of the company, test the program. We're working with Mike now on, on a monitorship for a company where our firm is serving as the monitor. But, you know, they have certain reporting obligations to the law enforcement agencies, whether it's the DOJ, the SEC, non-U.S. authorities. A compliance remediation plan typically is done internally by the company. They may bring in an external resource to do it, but they are not imposed by any kind of government agency or subject to official reporting and typically considered less intrusive, less prescriptive in what they're expected to do. But they might have similar mandates to take a look at the compliance program, assess the program, make recommendations for improvements, test the program. Typically, when the company is engaging a compliance professional to review the program and it's not being imposed as an independent monitor, it may be less intrusive and there may be more flexibility in terms of the scope and the work plan and the ultimate output. But they're, they're basically relatively similar in depth. Yeah, I would just add again that, you know, that periodic assessment is really a very common similarity between the development of a remediation plan that's going to impact the compliance program and then the monitorship itself. You know, the interviews with company personnel, quite common across both the assessment as well as the monitorship, the transaction testing to see if the transactions that are going through the compliance program are getting the proper rigor assigned to them. Those are both the same path for both the, the remediation program as well as the monitorship. I think the monitorship just might be at a little bit more of a heightened scale. And I think for both, a key piece is that root cause analysis. If you have a compliance miss, you have a breakdown, some improper conduct occurred, you want to figure out what was the root cause of that. And you want to focus your remediation on remediating the root cause. So if it wasn't a gift and entertainment issue, you don't need to spend a huge amount of time focusing on your gift and entertainment system. You want to have those systems, but that, that is, wouldn't typically be where you would focus your resources. So you want to think about what were the root causes of the problem that you had and how do you strengthen the controls to remediate those root causes. I agree with you guys. And I think that's another reason, one of the, another distinction between the two 
one is an effort to stave off the other, right? If you take it on yourself to make improvements to a compliance program that you've already concluded isn't best in class and may have contributed to the problem at hand, you know, you have take ownership of it and fix it and be less likely that a monitorship will be imposed on you in the first place. Certainly doing nothing, you're setting yourself up for a monitorship if your anti-bribery and corruption compliance program wasn't working in practice. Yeah, and one of the factors that law enforcement, the DOJ, the SEC, other authorities are going to look at in resolving the matter is what's the state of the compliance program. And so you can make a lot of progress even during the course of an investigation in improving the program and getting it to a different place at the end than at the beginning. And that, that can be very important to the type of resolution that you might have to face. You know, listen, investigations can be disruptive. They can damage morale and certainly undermine the organizational culture. What are some steps that can be taken to, to limit the extent to which the investigation is negatively impacting those things and you know, is generally a source of anxiety? Well, here, unfortunately, you may be somewhat limited in how much communication you can have with with people in the company about what's happening in the investigation. There are typically confidentiality issues, privilege issues, the public company disclosure issues. So it's often difficult to give people detailed information about what you're finding and what you're doing in an investigation. That being said, I think letting people know that the company is handling the issue, that they're not sweeping things under the rug, that an investigation is ongoing if it's something that you can communicate consistent with your other obligations, I think is very helpful. I think there's nothing more demoralizing than having people think allegations have been made and no one's taking them seriously. When you are in a position to be able to report, I think it's very helpful to do that and to let people know that there were consequences for misconduct, that there is a sense of organizational justice that the company doesn't only punish the low-level people, but when there is wrongdoing that involves high-level managers, business generators, that the company has the fortitude to take action. That's something that's very important because people feeling like there's senior managers get away with stuff is very corrosive to the culture. So that's important. And then also just running the investigation competently such that it doesn't swallow everything the company is trying to do, that it is focused on the narrowest set of people it needs to be focused on, that people aren't running all around the company, creating anxiety where it's not necessary is, is also important. I agree. And, you know, I've certainly seen examples of in the absence of some kind of communication, even though it has to be at least initially limited, the rumor mill then becomes the only source of information. The absence of communication services is like an accelerant, like gasoline. Right. And then these wild rumors start happening that, you know, hey, listen, the investigation may be a bad thing in the first place, but there's nothing as bad as, you know, like an unchecked rumor mill in terms of order of magnitude and what's happening. Having some sort of very thoughtfully crafted communications that at least dignifies the fact that you know, these people walking around carrying bankers boxes and occupying 
our conference rooms and our you know, calling people in our interview are here to help us. And there's stuff that we have to contend with. And we really can't share with you the details right now, but just rest assured that we're going to take care of it. And it's, it's going to be a just a bump in the road. So a lot of what we've talked about was related to one hypothetical, a whistleblower matter. Um, what if the facts are different? First thing that organizational leadership hears of the existence of an investigation is one or more corporate offices are, are raided by law enforcement. Typically not a great day for anybody. You know, so most organizations don't really have like a plan that then they just activate when that happens. It comes as a very unpleasant surprise when a police agency is executing a search warrant at one or more locations, for example. So what should companies do to protect the organization under that scenario without seeming to be obstructionist? Well, first of all, they should have a plan. And then the question is, well, what would such a plan look like? Well, one thing is having a designated person who will be in charge, who will be the point of contact when that happens, whether it's an on-site legal person, if there is one, or someone, someone else in senior leadership, but someone who is going to be the conduit and the liaison with law enforcement on the scene, then to have a plan of who else to notify. So do you need to notify someone in headquarters? Who should that person be? What are the communication channels that uh, should be activated is important. So know what you're, who you're supposed to call and, and call them quickly. And then finally, you know, you want to be cooperative. Typically, it's important to not be obstructionist in any way, but also there's certain privileged information that you're entitled to protect. And you want to start the dialogue quickly with law enforcement about where any privileged information may be located, what's going to be the plan to protect it, and to start that conversation fairly early. So I think those are the initial key pieces of a plan. So training is frequently the weak link in any bribery and corruption compliance program. You know, sometimes it's just that baseline training that everybody gets and there isn't anything that's more nuanced to maybe the the role that you play within the organization and the potential risk that you as an individual may pose based on your duties and responsibilities. So what are some examples that of organizations that are particularly good at developing and, and delivering anti-bribery and corruption training. So, Scott, without kind of naming company names, I will say that the ones that provide sort of realist, real-life scenarios for their employees, the ones that I find have done it best, they tailor, they don't take things off the shelf, they really do customize it to, to their business, to their industry, to their regions by providing kind of real-life examples so they know what they're facing. I, I use an example of I once went to a software company and they were using an oil and gas company's anti-corruption training software. And I think that was a, a complete miss. While there might be some similarities, I think the deriving things of value or benefit is really sort of missed in that sort of scenario. Companies that also go outside their organization to train their third parties that might be presenting them risk. You know, the intermediaries that we're dealing with in this hypothetical, were they trained? It would be interesting to know if the company did reach out to them to subject them to some sort of anti-bribery training, anti-corruption training that was similar to what their own employees undergo. On the subject of the internal communications, I mean, that's hyper important. It underpins, I think, just the, the training spectrum as a whole. Waiting until quarterly, semi-annual or annual trainings to kind of communicate what are you know, 
most likely real-time training needs. We want the company that's going to communicate more frequently on these issues because I think that shows that compliance for them is embedded in their culture. They're taking it seriously. And if something comes up in their region this week, it's not to wait until next year to kind of notify people that, hey, you might be facing this in your own region relative to the business that we're undertaking. So I think the real-time communications are as close to real-time communications that are meaningful are pretty critical and not things that should wait for the periodic training that might be occur within large-scale organizations. I think those are great points, Mike. I think I, I would just add to that. It's easy to get, you know, what I would call training fatigue because a lot of times these companies, you know, especially companies that have had a compliance program for a while, everyone's kind of seen the annual online training a million times and they're it's very rote for them. So varying the trainings, the setting, you know, whether it's a live trainer versus just the online, online can be very useful. I'm not saying it's not, and it can be very cost effective, but if you're only doing online, it's always the same, same set of slides or the same scenarios, people just tune it out. So varying the trainings, using real world scenarios, as, as Mike suggested, and just, you know, trying to think about here you are maybe a decade or more into your compliance program and how do you make things feel new and different so that people don't get that kind of boredom and fatigue and just tune it out. I agree. You know, I mean, I think as human nature is such that instructor-led training in particular, this, as they are assembling and taking their seats, they're waiting for the first indication as to why they should disengage and stop listening. And a, a surefire way to meet that very low expectation is for the training material not to be relevant to the duties and responsibilities of the people in the room or what that company does. You know, Mike, your example of the tech company that was using an oil and gas training deck, training materials is, is a perfect example because it's really hard to kind of to zero in on the audience and say, Hey, this is very relevant to the job that you do and to tailor those kind of case studies or examples to them and things that may have happened inside their organization or within, you know, sort of members of the peer group. That's much more likely to register with and capture people's attention as opposed to helping give them a reason why they should be looking at their phone for the entire session. So legal privilege can vary pretty significantly from one country to the next, with some countries not recognizing it at all, and others maybe not recognizing it when it is established by in-house counsel. So why is performing an investigation under the attorney-client privilege so important, and how can companies and their counsel safeguard it when the investigation includes some of the more problematic countries when it comes to privilege? Most countries do recognize privilege when you have outside lawyers involved. So yes, there are countries that don't recognize privilege for in-house lawyers, but the jurisdiction, it's relatively rare for jurisdiction not to recognize privilege when outside lawyers are involved. I think ultimately privilege brings a number of things. One, it, it allows the company to find out the facts and get candid legal advice without the risk that everything will come out. There often are U.S. legal authorities are involved and they're pretty respectful of privilege. So I think overall, it's typically a good idea if you can to structure an investigation where you can take advantage 
of the protections of privilege and confidentiality and get. Uh, you often will get more candid information if you're able to interview witnesses under privilege. But you're always going to be thinking in almost any investigation that there's a chance you're going to want to disclose the information or you're going to have to disclose the information. So just because you're doing it under privilege, it, it doesn't mean there's going to be an expectation that the information won't see the light of day. And it's important to warn witnesses when you're interviewing them that they're not going to have control over the information. They should understand that. So speaking of witnesses, witness interviews are often really central to the ability to understand the facts. The pandemic has significantly inhibited the use of in-person interviews. And it you know, looks like we're headed toward a, you know, another situation where the primary way that we're going to be engaging with witnesses may be on Zoom. You know, but investigations have worked ahead. They've had to, right? So are there additional steps to take when conducting witness interviews remotely? I would say just continuing to be patient, going through your outline, going through your objectives. If on kind of the accounting side, we're going through a series of transactions, there may be a case that turns on just one or two of these activities. So to make sure that we're fully understanding those, not being afraid to be as methodical, be as deliberate with our questioning, taking as much time as necessary to get through each of those, also making sure that the subject, they have the key documents at hand. I think one of the things with the, uh, made it a little bit easier for in-person where you can step outside for a couple of minutes, print something out and put it in front of somebody while they're sitting at a table. Now you really have to make sure, and I think it's made us better from the forensic accounting standpoint to say these are the exact types of activities we want to go through, the exact types of questions that we want to cover, in the hopes that we're going to get to the bottom of the activity that we're taking a look into. So I think, again, you know, from our side, it really has been a lot of patience, a lot of just making sure that we get through what it is that we need to get through, because these cases could hinge on just a couple of uh, certain types of transactions. So that's why I think we've kind of taken a little bit from the accounting side, but I think the, the attorney teams, they, they might have some similar views there, but I think it's probably more expansive because the, the interviews really, I think, are a bit more their domain than, than ours at certain points in time. One thing the pandemic has showed us is we actually can do more remotely than we probably thought we could. And there are certainly interviews where it's clearly not 100% as good as getting in a room with someone and really being able to assess their body language. But when the alternative is just not to progress the investigation, you realize you can do a lot remotely. I think even law enforcement agencies, you know, have realized that in the pandemic. And when the pandemic eventually ends and we can go back to in-person, I don't think we're going to go back to doing everything in person because we now see how cost effective and efficient it, it can be. That being said, we know there are challenges. There are challenges with using documents in our, on a remote platform and being able to really see, see the documents. There are challenges in being able to really assess people completely on camera and video. And then also there's, there's a kind of stamina of doing a, you know, a long interview on video that isn't there when you're doing it in person. So being more thoughtful about how long the interview is, how focused you need to be to do it in video platform is something you've got to be much more mindful of than if you if you have a full day in, you know, in a room with someone. Those are really good points you guys both make. So outside counsel and outside investigative firms are you know, sometimes maybe often called in, called to step in when the investigation is already in flight. So what advice would you give 
organizations that are taking initial internal investigation onto themselves, you know, to make sure that what they're doing is as productive as it could be and that what they're doing doesn't create any problems down the road with things like the admissibility of evidence or, or other issues. Well, I think one thing is your point that you made earlier, Scott, about thinking about privilege, because even if you're doing it entirely internally, there are ways to structure it. For example, if you've deputized someone in internal audit to start looking at something, are they being directed by the general counsel's office so that you do have an argument for privilege, even early initial stages of the investigation? So that's one issue. Another is the independence concern and making sure that we're thinking about having people who don't report up the chain to the potential wrongdoers involved in the investigation that you thought about having people who weren't there at the time of the events, weren't in the approval chain for the third party at issue when the third party was onboarded. You know, so you're thinking about those issues and making sure that the initial steps you take won't be questioned. And then finally, on evidence gathering, making sure you've preserved evidence early on, making sure that you're able to follow the chain of custody for evidence collection, even if you've done that internally, it is going to be important and that you document the steps that you take. Those are great points. I mean, it's, um, I think it's a perfectly reasonable and prudent thing to do is take this on initially, see, think several times for years, is there any there there today? And it's appropriate because I think it's really kind of fits the scenario when maybe you've got a set of allegations here. You're not sure what you have. But I think, you know, some of the important things to do is like who leads it? What capabilities do we have inside the organization where we can do these things? Are there any capabilities that Maybe we should have, but don't. And should we have them lined up for these types of scenarios? You know, you said it earlier, Kim, we should have a plan, right? For when law enforcement shows up wearing raid jackets and they have a U-Haul truck outside full of bankers boxes. But you should also have a plan for how internal investigations are run. They're done for different reasons. They require different skill sets. But thinking through them when your hair's not on fire is always better than figuring it out on the fly because mistakes are made. And then also it becomes glaringly obvious that there's some skill set that you need access to that you don't currently have. I think those are all really sort of important takeaways. This has been great. It's a really, really interesting discussion. You guys both have contributed tremendous information and I think the listeners are really going to learn a lot from from from, the, from both of you from this conversation. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Mike. Yes. Thank you, Kim, and, and thank you, Scott. So that was Wilmer Hale partner, Kim Parker, and FTI Senior Managing Director, Mike Archibald. This concludes this episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. I'm Scott Moritz, Senior Managing Director and FTI Consulting's Risk and Investigations Practice. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for the next episode of Fraud Eat Strategy. And if you have an idea about a fraud or corruption case, topic, or guest that you'd like to hear about in a future episode, email us at fraudeatsstrategy at FTI Consulting. Thanks for listening.